following program is brought to you by your friends at Podcast One. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Everybody loves honey glazed carrots. A great side dish for your springtime celebration and a delicious compliment to a sweet, bright Moscato. Your Bloody Mary bar will be the talk of brunch with the vodka I'm stalking. Pile those toppings sky high. Serving lamb this season? Try it with a bold Cabernet from the trendy Paso Robles region. Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! And so I, I answered this Craigslist ad, uh, you know, long story short, the chef there was like, you know, I asked her to show me how she'd like her food cooked. She's kind of like, oh, you know how to cook, just cook it. Um, so I did. And, um, you know, three or four months went by and like word got around the neighborhood that like a different chef was cooking on Sunday nights. So Sunday nights became like the busiest uh, night of the week for the restaurant food wise. Today we have Chris Coombs with us on Skype. He's a chef and co-owner of Boston Urban Hospitality, which includes restaurants D-Bar, Duov, and Boston Chops. He was also on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list in 2012. And uh, Chris, hello. Thanks for, for coming on. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Correct me if I'm wrong. But I understand uh, from what I've read about you that you were savvy as a kid and would select friends based on if their parents could cook. Is that true or false? Yeah, embarrassingly true. Uh, So my mother, uh, God love her, um, is a terrible cook. And my father could barely boil hot dogs. Um, So when I was a kid, my friend selection was based on two things. Number one, when dinner time came around, was I sent home or was I allowed to stay? That was the first criteria. And if I was allowed to stay, how good of a cook was my friend's mother? And um, I ended up falling in with uh, this Puerto Rican family whose cuisine was just like out of this world. So I fell in love with flavor um, probably in middle school before I even realized um, that I had. But I knew the difference between the food that I was getting at home that I clearly didn't enjoy and the food that I was getting at my friend's house, which was outstanding. And taking a moment to thank our supporters, Veridesk and Rocket Mortgage. More about these companies later in the show. If we went back and spoke to some of your peers in elementary school um, and and told them in elementary school that you were going to become this award-winning chef and restaurateur, would they have said that? Oh, yeah, we would have called that. What would they have said? Uh, they'd say not a chance. They'd say absolutely not a chance. And I, and I think that there are um, a, a multitude um, of reasons for that. Uh, but, you know, first and foremost is just my, my upbringing and my background. I mean, no one, um, even in my extended family, had had, you know, any sort of success or wealth or, I mean, everyone, we we're all good, hardworking people. And I think that's, you know, where, where I got my roots is that my father really told me, like, look, if you want nice things in life, you got to work really hard mm-hmm. for them. And, uh, you know, that combined with, you know, growing up with, um, you know, severe attention deficit disorder um, and, and generally not doing um, super well in school. Right. Um, you know, I think that combination of like, you know, coming from a, you know, we weren't poor, but we were certainly lower, lower middle class. Um, <clears throat> you know, they're just, they're just, you know, and not to mention at the time, you know, being a chef wasn't even cool yet. So when you look at like what happened in food um, over the last 20 years, you know, and a lot of this, you know, was really Food Network taking uh, food mainstream. But, you know, when Food Network first came out, it was like, you know, it was Emerald, it was Bobby Flay. Right. Um 
you know, and, and that was about, that was really about it. You know, Omara Batali was around then too. Those were the first three who like really came out on Food Network. And then like before that, you know, you had your like, you had your Julia Child era and, <laughs> you know, the galloping gourmet, but you know, food really hadn't hit the mainstream. It wasn't hip. It wasn't cool. Um, you know, chefs weren't these rock stars yet. So um, I think at the time, um, your suggestion of that, I mean, it wasn't even a thing at the time. You know, like a, like the celebrity chef era hadn't even really begun at that right. point. Were you, uh, did you read Kitchen Confidential when that came out? Oh, man, did I fall in love. So I didn't – so part of uh, having uh, like severe ADHD and not knowing how to manage it as a kid, uh, one of the factors was I actually couldn't read. Mm. Um, and well, I could read. I knew how to read words. I just couldn't retain any of the uh, information from the words on the paper. <laughs> right. But – um, I had a, a an instructor uh, in, in culinary class in ninth grade. Uh, his name was Mike Levin. I believe he still uh, instructs in Pro Start programs somewhere, I think up in New Hampshire maybe. And um, he actually read uh, Kitchen Confidentials to our ninth grade class. Really? And, oh, yeah. And I, I mean, I don't know if that was necessarily appropriate. Yeah, for, that, I was for, thinking there's so many anecdotes you couldn't <laughs> – you wouldn't want to share with, with junior yeah, high. But yeah. Well, you, so here's this guy, right? He was probably, you know, 35 or 40 years old. Um, and he, you know, I mean, he had owned restaurants. He had a place, you know, called like the Blue Ronda down on the South Shore. And, you know, he sort of like was reliving his his career and the craziness of yeah. the restaurant industry at that time um, through that book. So when it was read to me, I was just like, wow, you know, like here's a place where all the misfits go, you know? And and I was, you know, that book sort of like reaffirmed what I had already picked up on from uh, washing dishes in my neighbor's seafood restaurant from the time I was 11 or 12, which is like, if you have a lot of energy and you don't really know how to, (laughs) don't really know how to channel it, like restaurants are a really good place for that. So, well, I know, I know I've spoken with the um, chef, uh, David Leibowitz from, uh, you know, who came out of uh, Alice Waters and, and uh, Chez Panisse. You, you, and I know that he said he started washing dishes when he was fifteen. People just connect with it really young. You were eleven, is that right? Yeah. So look, you know, I um, again, you know, it's not like I was working forty hours a week at eleven or twelve years old, but I was yeah. certainly working, you know, sixteen or twenty uh, hours a week for five dollars an hour cash. And you know, my neighbor across the street from us, uh, this guy named Bobby Picano, he owned a restaurant called Ocean Delight. Okay, so it's basically like a fish fry clam shack that did like roast beef sandwiches and, you know, broiled haddock and, uh, right. you know, yeah, yeah. just, New you England's know, finest. North Shore, yep. like terrible cuisine, like, like the food I grew up with that like didn't have any salt or seasoning. But, you know, I mean, a lot of the fundamentals around seafood were there. They just weren't, you know, it wasn't fancy. And, um, you know, so essentially, you know, my dad, I, I remember you know, like a dollar, a dollar a week allowance was about it. And, you know, I wanted things like, you know, Sega Genesis, or I wanted, yeah. um, you know, nice shoes that didn't come from Payless, or I wanted basketball cards. And, um, you know, there was really only so many chores that my father um, could afford to pay me to do around the house, because he didn't have the means. I mean, like, when I say we didn't have the means, it was like, you know, he didn't tell me this since I was 18 years old. But um, we always had this big water jug in the closet at the house and it was like the family game that like we all like collected all the change we could to see like how fast we could fill the jug you know um and then every once in a while the jug would come out of the closet and uh we'd have a game to see uh between my sisters and i and my father there were three of us uh who could roll the most change the fastest now when i turned 18 or 19 my father told me the days when the jug came out of um the closet 
that those were the days where you didn't have enough gas money to get to work. Right. So we were right. rolling change for him to buy gas. And it's like when you're little, like you don't, you know, like I never, I never knew that. I never understood it. Cause like, you know, my dad never really like made it my problem, you know? Yeah. Um, but as I got older and I started to get the, the eye for nice things, you know, like my dad was out there trying to make a deal with our neighbor saying like, look, you know, like <laughs> pay him whatever you want to pay him. Like just give him something to do. So I was like, you know, cleaning grease traps and like scrubbing pots and pans and like, you know, picking up the outside around the restaurant and just, you know, and then, you know, every week that went by, I'd learn like a new task here or there. But right. yeah, I was, I was, um, I worked straight through middle school and, and honestly, I think, um, you know, prior to, to finding kitchens, I think I was getting in like some trouble. And then once I found kitchens, it really became my outlet, you know? So it's interesting. Like I, I, um, when I was a teenager, like 15, see, I connected with radio and media, which is what I do today. And I, uh, I, I did like an overnight shift from three a.m. till 7 a.m. It's like an intern. I think it was unpaid, but it, that was in Canada. And it's the same kind of thing. It's a, it's an entry point. It's a very humbling entry point that you either connect with it or you don't. But when you do, it's thrilling and you can, yeah. it's a great place to start. Right. I, I think for me, it took a couple of years. Cause I think initially it was like, <clears throat> initially I just wanted nice shit and we didn't have it. You know, like it drove me crazy when everyone had like the Reebok pumps or like, yeah. you know, Nike Air Force Ones. And I was wearing like Payless shoes. And like, you know, oddly, like kids notice that stuff, you know, like they oh, yeah. notice that. It's brutal. Yeah. They notice that like basically, um, you know, you went back to school shopping with like a hundred dollars and those are your clothes for the year. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. kids notice that you've got like three pairs of pants, you know? So, um, so that was, that was, um, that was basically my initial inspiration was like just to have money of my own i mean like i would i'd hustle i'd hustle to do like anything for money you know like i used to go down to like this area in east Mangelatum where people used to hit golf balls you know and like inevitably like people wouldn't find all their golf balls yeah. so i'd go like late in the afternoon and like pick up all the golf balls and like try and fill buckets and then i'd go to like whatever yard sale there was and try and like sell golf balls you know like I, i'd right. hustle anyway right. i could to try and like try and scrap some money together but i think i think it started off as that and then you know probably within like the first couple of years when they actually like started letting me handle food and like you know make mashed potatoes or you know that's when i was like hey you know like not only is this cool but like now i could you know i picked up a couple tricks to like you know either feed myself at, at home or eat at work you know the guys were always cool enough to like you know make staff meal for me at work so like i didn't have to worry again about like eating dinner yeah. at home or like was terrible so um, yeah, man, it's been it's been a passion for a long time, and um, you know, it well, started really young, and I think that was one of the things that sort of like started me off having competitive advantage. You know, it was like when I went to when I went to culinary school at the Culinary Institute of America, like it wasn't my it wasn't my GPA that got me into that school because my GPA was like two point eight in high right, school. Right. Uh, it was that I had worked in restaurants for six years. You know, so like when I got to culinary school and like kids were kids were like learning how to chop an onion. Like I had already been, um, working like right. 50, 60 hours, you know, when I was like 16, 17, uh, even 15, I was working like 40, 50, 60 hours a week. And, um, you know, I mean, I was helping the chef like do ordering an inventory and like, you know, working all the stations on the line and expediting in like a restaurant that was doing like 700 covers a mm-hmm. night at that point, which wasn't ocean delay. It was another restaurant, but, um, you know, I just had like a bunch of experience going into it. So I just sort of like there were a lot of classes early on that instead of like being, uh, you know, being taught in those classes, the early on classes, I was more like a leader, you know, like a natural leader. Cause I had more experience than right. others around me. And I just, you know, 
just kind of ran with it. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Support for the Forbes Under 30 podcast comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans, the mortgage company that decided to ask, why? Why can't clients get approved in minutes rather than weeks? Why can't they make adjustments to the rate and term in real time? And why can't there be client-focused technological mortgage revolution? Quicken Loans answered all these questions and more with Rocket Mortgage. Rocket Mortgage gives you the confidence you need when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. Whether you're looking to buy your first home or your tenth, with Rocket Mortgage, you get a transparent online process that gives you the confidence to make an informed decision. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Apply simply, understand fully, mortgage confidently. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com slash Forbes, equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states, nmlsconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Let's move ahead because you have had tremendous success in uh, with, with three successful restaurants uh, in the Boston area, Boston Urban <coughs> Hospitality, associated with that. And, you, you know, you graduate from the uh, Culinary Institute of America. And um, the restaurant business is really tough. The margins are really tough. And yeah. so I, I imagine that most people that come out of culinary school, you know, they may, they may know their way around a kitchen. Mm-hmm. But how, do you, how did the, the, the business acumen come to you to, to, to get in a major American city three successful packed restaurants off the ground? Yeah. Where do you think and, that and came a, from? And a, and a fourth that's about to open. A fourth that's coming. About, okay. In about three weeks. Yeah, yeah. And it's huge. It's 300 seats, a $5 million build out. Big, big restaurant. Um, so, uh, you know, I think – I think, you know, I came out of school, I only have an associate's degree, um, so I graduated uh, culinary school at 19 years old, and, like, I really just wanted to be a chef. I just, well, I, I, I just wanted to cook. Like, I didn't really, you know, I think a lot of kids come out of school and they, like, you know, it's weird, like, they'll, they'll come and try out a duov, and, like, they come out of culinary school and they want my job, and I'm kind of like, you know... <laughs> You know, right. how about you learn how to hold a saute pan first and, yeah. you know, find your skills. So, you know, for me, I, I never, I never really chased like money. I never, you know, I never chased prestige. I just like focused on my technical skills. I, I focused on, uh, working harder than everyone else around me and just, you know, coming, you know, I, for example, I had jobs like, you know, when I was an apprentice for Ming Tsai at Blue Ginger, like I was supposed to be in at 11 in the morning. And uh, I'd come in at six or seven in the morning and work till midnight or one o'clock in the morning, uh, six days a week, you know? So when you're packing like two or three years worth of work into a year, like you grow and learn very fast and your skills develop very fast, but it takes like a special type of person to not only like, not only work, but like live the entire life. Like when I was down at the end of little Washington, you know, I was working 60, 70 hours a week, but you know, I was down there alone. I didn't really have that many friends other than the people I worked with. So, you know, I'd work 60 or 70 hours and then I'd like come home and read cookbooks for like hours and hours and hours and like cook things out of those books and just sort of like, you know, any, it was weird. Like I spent my whole life, like being able to like, unable to like read a novel, but you put a cookbook in my hand and I can tell you like 90% of the recipes that were in that book, like Mm. (laughs) off the top of my head. Um, so and yeah, just lots of, uh, lots of hard work and, and just sort of going all in on the business. Um, and, uh, I met my now business partner on a Craigslist ad, oddly enough. So I was working at this, uh, fine dining French restaurant in Boston called Troquet. Um, 
really cool little, you know, like 60 seat French restaurant that sold super fancy wine, but they were closed on Sundays and Mondays and like being a workaholic that wasn't going to work. So, um, there was this, uh, like nightclub that happened to serve food down in Dorchester called D bar that was looking for like a Sunday chef. They'd only been open like four or five months or whatever, but it was 150 bucks cash to come down and like, you know, run the kitchen on the chef's day off. So, right. And so I, I answered this Craigslist ad, uh, you know, long story short, the chef there was like, you know, I asked her to show me how she'd like her food cooked. She's kind of like, oh, you know how to cook, just cook it. Um, so I did. And, um, you know, three or four months went by and like word got around the neighborhood that like a different chef was cooking on Sunday nights. So Sunday nights became like the busiest uh, night of the week for the restaurant food wise. Mm. Um, and And honestly, the business was probably i didn't really know at the time it was probably months from closing because like the nightclub wasn't really working food wasn't working right um so my now business partner brian pacini sat me down um and he was like look you know i want to make you an executive chef and i was 22 years old oh. you know yeah um yeah. and and he said i want to fire my business partner and i want to fire my chef and i want to bring you on to reconcept and i was like nah you know i want to do fine dining like what do i know about a bistro um and he's like what does anyone know about a bistro in dorchester make it your own so um, so I came in and, you know, sales were, I, I'll just give you real numbers. So sales at the time were like around like f just shy of $600,000 in sales, like mm. just underneath and, um, came in, like reworked the menu, um, worked hard for a couple months, like got some good response. And, uh, one day this guy calls me out of the dining room, asked for the chef. Um, it's this guy named Peter McNamara, right? And I have no idea who this guy is. And, um, he just said to me, he said, you know, I feel like, I have to introduce myself. My name's Peter McNamara, um, and I just want to thank you for the best meal I've had in Boston in 15 years. And I think I found Boston's next great chef. I'm gonna make sure the world knows it. I'm like, oh, that's very nice of you, right. you know, thinking this guy's like totally full of shit. Yeah. So, um, in essence, he ends up being like uh, a retired food writer who everyone thought was dead. Everyone thought died of cancer. <laughs> Um, that uh. no one had heard of from like 10 years, but he like founded the improper Bostonian was the food writer for like many years. So he starts cold calling all these food writers who he's known who haven't heard from him in 10 years. And they're like, you're alive. And he's like, I found Boston's next great chef. Um, so he starts bringing in local and national writers and I just keep cooking thinking like this guy's a Yahoo because you couldn't just you couldn't just figure out who this guy was because he's been off the grid for so long. So right. like your Google results from someone who hadn't written since the mid 90s like were terrible, you know, so you couldn't you just couldn't find the information. Um, so sure enough, he brought in, um, you know, Matt Schaefer from uh, Boston Herald and um, uh, I got a three star review when I was 22 years old. Mm. Uh, the Boston Herald, and then the Globe followed, and uh, Improper Bostonian, and um, so needless to say, in my first 13 months um, at D Bar, um, sales tripled. And so, so at that point, it becomes easy because I imagine one of the biggest struggles is the challenge to get financing in the in the restaurant business. Yeah, right. Yeah. So so this is this is kind of how things launched, right? So my like my career goals were to like become an executive chef and make as much as my dad had made, which my dad like never made more than like 50 grand in a year. You know, so it was like I was like it's like a livable amount of money, you can have a family, which, you know, like I don't even know how people do it on that anymore, but that's what we did it on back then. Um and that was what was in my head. So then, you know, we're 13 months into it, sales triple, um, you know, and we're like late 07. Uh, my business partner 
makes me a partner. So that now I'm now I'm 23 years old and I have a partnership You're participating uh, in the profits. Yeah, like and like not small either, like like 10 percent, you know. So right. so all of a sudden we're like things are happening, everything's good. And we were really affordably priced. So at the time, our entrees, like our most expensive entree, was nineteen dollars. Um, so then the recession hits, oh eight, oh nine, um, and we get even busier. Because what happened during the recession was, is like people weren't going to fine dining places anymore. They were still going out. They just weren't spending as much money. And we were like one of the only like truly affordable places around. So like we ramped up and got busier and busier, uh, and we're making good money. So then, you know, two thousand nine came around I was getting going crazy like I needed more um so we started looking at different properties around Boston come to find out in the recession there was like a lot of empty restaurant spaces and we were looking for a good deal um you know Brian's a couple years older than me he's three years older than I am and uh we found this location in the back bay that was just like absolutely dynamite you know so that ended up being dua but you know we walked through about 15 places but um I got really excited which I probably shouldn't have done but we signed uh we signed an incredible deal um, there with a landlord who really believed in us, which was huge. Um, and then uh, there was a lot of Obama money available at the time, so we actually applied for an SBA loan together because mm. there was no, there was just no, there was no, you know, there was no private equity money. There was no preferred lending. You know, the, the right. only way that we were getting money to do a restaurant, you know, to raise for a restaurant, in, you know, oh nine into two thousand ten was, you know, to get that SBA loan, and we did. Um, so, you know, got to Wab open 2010, um, you know, more than a hundred. How many does that seat? Uh, Duav is, um, 82 in the dining room, 17 at the bar and then 28 okay. on the patio yeah. seasonally. So it, we're basically about a, you know, about a hundred yeah. seat restaurant ballpark. So, you know, opened up, got some really strong reviews, um, and really, really timed the market well, you know, so we ended up opening in September 2010. And, you know, as you know, the economy started to really, you know, people started to spend money again, and right. things started to, things started to loosen up. And um, how, how know, much does the the reviews, I mean, you mentioned the, the Boston Herald and the Globe, but you know, when you I mean, Boston Chops was voted uh, Food and Wine Magazine's best new steakhouse in 2015. Right. In the country, yeah. Uh, the I country. mean, yeah. So, I mean, press is press is important, you know. And I think um, timing wise, you know, like when Duav first launched, you know, like getting that three star review from Dever First and the Boston Globe, right, uh, was really big uh, because um, the Globe hadn't reviewed me, uh, given me a full review for D Bar because um, it just wasn't a big enough restaurant for them to, you know, at the time that wasn't the type of restaurants they were reviewing. Do, so, do you, do you, know, you know, do you know when they're coming in? No. No, no, no. I yep. mean, I, I wish, but that's not a, <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's not really a thing. I mean, you don't, you know, like generally they keep their reviewers, like right. you can't Anonymous. find their pages yeah. online and, um, you know, but I think at the time, you know, when you talk about 2010 and the differences in like media and what's happened, you know, you're talking about, you're talking pre Instagram, right? So right. it's like the way that people were consuming their content then, right? Like getting that review, in, in 10 and then 2011, you know, food and wine, uh, people's best new chef, you know, like I, I ended up coming in second place to Jamie Bissonette, who like is mm-hmm. also like an amazing, amazing chef from Boston. Um, you know, came in second to him and, right. um, you know, and, and we just, we just kept rolling, you know, and, and, and Duav has been a concept that like really, you know, 
I don't know if it's even still fully formed today. I mean, it's just something we're completely, you know, we're constantly pressing ourselves to be better and evolving. Like mm. we just earned, we just earned four stars um, from Forbes Travel Guide. Um, after you know three years of being recommended, we finally became a four star property, and we're the first um, new four star restaurant in Boston in eight years from Forbes Travel Guide. You know, so that kind of and there's only four four star restaurants in all of Boston, all right? right? Um, so it's like, you know, and, and that's something that we worked, you know, seven and a half years right. to earn. Right. So it's like, you know, being in my mid thirties now, it's like, you know, I'm consistently trying to refine my craft, you know, train my team, um, you know, and, and sort of carry a vision and a culture amongst, um, our Boston urban hospitality team in which like, you know, we really are dedicated to, um, our guest experience being as as perfect as it can be in our setting, right? So it's like right. we're not trying to be the best, you know, restaurant in the world. We're not trying to be um, anything that we're not. We're trying to be the best version of Duav that we can possibly be. We're trying to be the best version of Boston Chops that we can possibly right. be. And we'll be right back after this quick break. Traditional static offices are a thing of the past. Today, companies and employees want an active workspace. Veradesk helps people reimagine their office design. Being more active at work, like standing more, sitting less, can help improve your health by boosting energy and productivity. Veradesk Active Workspace Solutions make it easy to encourage more movement in a day. The new ProDesk 60 electric standing desk is the cornerstone of the active office. It's designed with commercial-grade materials, stable at any height, and fully assembled in under five minutes. Plus, all Veritas products are made to last. They're also simple to set up and move or reconfigure as businesses change and grow. Check out Veritas products, including the new ProDesk 60 Electric, risk-free for 30 days with free shipping and free returns. Learn more at veridesk.com slash Forbes. That's V-A-R-I desk.com slash Forbes. The right workspace is more than just square footage. It's an incubator of achievement, a magnet for talent. Your workforce unleashed. For 160 years, Savills has been bringing real intelligence to global real estate, ensuring not just any space, but the perfect workspace. Because the most important dimension of a building is the human one. Savills. See what Savills can do for you at Savills.us. Chris, let me ask you a little bit about the experience that people have coming in because I know you've really leveraged social media in a big way. And correct me if I'm wrong, but people can come into one of your restaurants and they can actually – you have a table that's lit up for Instagram? Uh, that so that's actually in the new restaurant that's not open yet. So it Is just, that the one that's going to be in it, the bank? Yeah. So actually Boston Chops in the South End is a bank as well, but it uh, has windows whereas the new um, Boston Chops didn't have any windows. So right. Um, I'm super into like food photography and like just beautiful food images or, you know, food porn as we call it. And the new restaurant didn't have any natural light and I've always shot natural light. So, um, I needed a solution for myself to be able to take pictures of the food. Um, and I just came up with this idea, um, along with one of my friends who's a professional photographer, uh, Andy Ryan, who's, you know, I mean, he's been around since, I mean, he shot like the Persian Gulf war, you know, he's been around a while and we just sort of brainstormed on how we could build a secondary light system over this one table um in the restaurant that wouldn't be obtrusive to the rest of the diners but basically that we could have a table that could also have a built-in light right, studio right that's um, interesting and, going and, from from you know f- <laughs> covering war to like a 
veal parmesan, but it's it is yeah. interesting. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's 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 an amazing uh uh, photographer of food and of architecture. Right. I mean, this guy's right. like, he's done it all. But so basically, I mean, I, you know, I couldn't have, I dreamt the idea, but I didn't really know how to execute it. But luckily within my, my network, we were able to figure out like how we we're going to engineer this table and not have it be completely obnoxious to all the other diners. So we have uh, an LED panel over the table, uh, and then two striding, uh, LED panels that are on, um, that are basically on adjustable arms. The, you the know, concept is, gained some traction it was featured like uh la times and new york post and, right um, i'll be happy to put it into practice here pretty soon <laughs> yeah you know chris I, it's interesting i we are recording this i'm recording this in uh in beverly hills and i was driving here and there i was driving by one of the shops on the way in and they have like all the high-end stores have these um pink walls or special walls of people and it's like people just line up and pose in front of it all day in front of the show it's like marketing genius yeah, it's an Instagrammer's world right now. I mean, it's look, you know, I think traditional marketing, it's not it's not dead, but it's about how people consume their content and right. and it's just like you said like pink walls and neon, it's everywhere. It's like, you know, the most Instagrammed food is like a donut because, you know, it's a cylinder with a hole in it and like right. all of a sudden like sprinkles are cool again but like realistically i haven't eaten sprinkles since i was like eight years old you know yeah but they photograph so well so um i just think there's a lot of um you know the, the cool thing with a pink wall not that i have any or intend to have any yeah um, but as soon as it goes out of style you can just paint over it <laughs> right you know oh it's, and, yeah it costs nothing yeah, it costs nothing. I mean, like um, in LA, definitely. There's so many like inst- I call them Instagrammable moments. Yeah. Um, that I see so many times. Like if I see one more person post the boys and girls sign from the Equinox gym in LA, it's like literally every person that goes to Equinox in LA takes a picture of this uh, right. sign and posts it. And and, and you know that's just. You know, every time someone does that, like everyone realizes, hey, like that person's working out at Equinox, so like good for them for right. It's it up, gene- does, you know? that, does that inform it's your gene- work, Chris? When you're foraging hen, chicken, and mushrooms, <laughs> are you thinking like aside from the good produce and seasonal, uh, seasonal produce that you're getting, are you like how do I want to design this in a way that's going to look interesting for people who are shooting it? Okay, so here's so this is really funny. So I get more questions about like the plating of the food um on my instagram than like anything else it's like it's like the number one thing that people ask me about they're like you know i did an interview yesterday where they were saying like you know did you create or invent uh like these platings and like how did you learn how to do this and the reality is is that uh i've been plating like this almost my entire career it was just never like the, the only people who saw it were the people who were consuming it, right? So, right. so now that I know that, especially at Duwav, like more than half the people coming into the dining room are taking pictures of the food before they eat it. You know, now it's like every single dish that goes out has to look a, a certain specific way. Like we have to be consistent because um, ultimately, like that is our that is our image, that is our brand, that is what you know, the consumer sees that's what they're exposed to. And ultimately, that's what's going to um, attract new business. And when you talk about, you know, cost of customer acquisition, I think that, you know, each guest that comes into our restaurant, like I view them as a unique marketing opportunity. Um, And that's simply because, you know, if they have a smartphone, and they're inspired by what it is that we put on the plate, and they choose to share that with their local and immediate network. I mean, 
what what really is your cost of customer acquisition? Oh wait, they're paying you for it. You know? So for me that's like you know, that's the most mind blowing thing about Instagram is like all these Instagrammers with tons and tons of followers, they all struggle with the same exact thing that I do, which is like you need to have the content, right? So I just want to make it easy for these Instagrammers to have like stunning content that's going to get great insights and it's going to get great um, exposure. And then, you know, come to find out I have the location to monetize that, right? right? So it's like I am able to monetize the post that they post that gets a thousand likes because that's going to bring six new people into my restaurant. And what did it really cost me? They paid me for dinner, you know. Yeah, really. um, so I think if you look at if you look at all your guests as a marketing opportunity, right? Like, I think I know it's you know like at the end of the day, really for me, it still comes down to like you know flavor presentation. You eat with your eyes first, and then that everything's cooked technically perfectly. But um, you know those are principles that we don't ever lower our standards on anyway. And Chris, I know that you take care of yourself. You watch what you eat. Apparently, you, you eat. Six to ten pounds, protein heavy. Is that right? Six to ten pounds of chicken uh, a week? Yeah, I mean, I eat a lot of chicken. I think chicken's like, I don't know, some people think chicken's gross. I think chicken's like the most delicious I'm thing. I'm with in you. The world chicken and fish. Probably. That's all, I yeah. live off it. Yeah, yeah I, eat, I do eat fish, but I mean, I eat, I probably eat like, in pounds, on a good week, I'll probably eat like seven pounds of chicken a week. Wow. Now I'm guessing that this the, the poutine stuffed baked potato that you do over the holidays that's not on the healthy diet list. Uh okay so and I'm Canadian know, I, so I have a particular affinity for that uh, sure. I mean, everything the, about it. Me it's about portion, right? So it's like people say like oh like how do you um stay in the shape that you're in uh and uh you know be around the food you're around all the time. And the yeah. reality is is that like I taste everything. Uh, and if I'm going to eat it, I eat it in like a very reasonable yeah. portion. So, like I'm not going to eat an entire potato myself. I'm going to eat like an right. eighth of it and feel happy and satisfied and that's that. And then I'm going to go like bust it in the gym. Yes. To make sure it I love it. Chris, gym, that's you know? the first thing people say to me too. They say, how do you stay in the shape that you're in? Every, no, I'm just, I'm just, if you could see me, you wouldn't do yeah. that. But honestly, I think, I think there's a lot of principles of like, like I'm not really here to talk about like fitness because I think everyone has to find what works for them. Right. Um, but for me, you know, my fitness actually stems from managing my uh, ADD and ADHD, right? So it's like if I keep a very specific diet and a very specific workout regimen, right. um, managing my ADD is very easy. Uh, and when I don't and I eat things like sugar, um, it's very, very challenging to manage. So um, for me, it's not just for physical wellness. It's also for mental wellness. Right. And, um, you know, like <laughs> I know it sounds stupid, but – I drink a ton of water and days that I don't drink a ton of water, I have really bad days and days where I drink like a gallon and a half of water, I have really good days. And right. I know that sounds like the most basic thing in the history of the world, but you know, drink a lot of water. It I, helps. I hear you. And but just between you and me, how important is the, uh, avoiding fruit because of its sugar? Okay, so I eat natural fruits, but it's all, for me, it's all about timing, right? So, like, if I'm going to eat fruit, I eat it in the morning. I don't eat it before yeah. bed. Okay. Um, so I eat. I actually eat a lot of fruit, but I generally. Um, so I wake up early every day. I usually wake up at like between like five fifteen and like five forty. Um, so I eat. I eat like six meals a day usually. Um, so I eat every like two and a half hours. Now, obviously, you know, I have food available to me more than most people do, you know, between like home and always being in a kitchen yeah. somewhere. Um, 
but I believe in eating like protein rich meals on a very high frequency. Um, but there are certain foods that like I only eat at certain times. Um, and, and I believe in like, you know, like the only, the only sugar that I consume is like, I'll have like a sugar in my coffee, uh, in the morning. And then I'll have like, uh, bananas, raspberries, strawberries, blueberries, stuff like that. But all, all my fruit right. consumption, it's always pre-workout, right? And it's always before like nine in the morning. Um, and then occasionally I'll do like a little bit of like a dextrose spice with, uh, sp- dextrose spike with protein post-workout just to get the insulin boost. But what that's do you a do whole for dessert third. in the evenings? Uh, I don't, I mean, I taste it, but I don't eat dessert. Yeah, okay. I, 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 I love cheese. So, um, you know, one of the things that I, I do before bed is like, yeah. you know, cakes and proteins are really good, slow release proteins. So I'm like really into like cottage cheese before bed or like there's some really good like, uh, like I, I, I call them like lean cheddars, you know, like they still have like saturated fats and stuff right. like that, but not, you know, they're like good healthy fats. So I eat a lot of like really sharp, um, aged cheddars and things like that, um, at night. And for me, that's just as satisfying. That's so. right. Yeah. I, I've actually been trying to get off sugar a little bit too. I'll have like a frozen banana and because I, I don't have that much sugar, it tastes like ice cream. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy, right? It's, it's so funny and it, you know, there's so much, there's so much information out there about this, you know, and then like that one documentary that was really hot this past summer, that, that what the health documentary, you know, anybody who swears by that movie, like that's, that's good for them mm-hmm. talking about how meat's terrible for you and the sun and your oh, thing. Yeah, right, they, right. They, they found a doctor to say that sugar is not bad for you. And, and I was just like astonished that they found somebody who would actually say that in yeah. that documentary. And as soon as, as soon as I saw that part of the movie, it's like, well, I can't take this whole film seriously right. because like, you know, I personally experienced the effects of like how, how sugar impacts me as an adult, you know, trying to whatever. I mean, it's not, <laughs> it's way off topic. But. That's all right. Well, well, Chris, let's bring it home and just tell me, uh, I know you got the fourth restaurant coming in. Yeah. Um, yeah. what are some other future plans for, uh, Boston urban hospitality and things that you, you want to be doing maybe that you're not doing right now? Yeah. So, um, so currently, you know, I'm just, I'm really focused. We've actually been building, uh, Boston shops downtown for about 14 months now, 14 months of construction. <laughs> so, um, it's 11,000 square feet, 300 seats, uh, you know, four private dining rooms, two bars. I mean, the place is just, absolutely immaculate so um you know the big thing is is you know we're gonna hire a hundred people um to open this restaurant and just sort of training um that many new people um you know having the management company above that restaurant and having you know we're gonna have 15 or 20 core employees from boston urban hospitality because i currently have 137 employees um really just training in the culture to make sure that um we can achieve the boston urban hospitality standard of excellence um and really deliver to our guests i mean that's that's first and foremost. Um, and, um, you know, that should, um, you know, comfortably position us as, you know, a medium sized restaurant group, which is, which is good. And, um, you know, we've got, uh, we've got some really talented chefs, um, working for us who, um, deserve their own restaurants. So, um, that's really going to be my next focus is just making sure, um, we start to, um, open concepts and, and expand our partners and expand our, our branding and you have um, a uh, you've you've a child at home right you have a family I do yeah I have a I have a 20 month uh, old son named Carter uh, and a wife Victoria so I I'd, I'd certainly like to see them a little more but I've been saying that forever for right? yeah People, well listen I can really happen, I can so. already predict that Carter's friends are going to be coming home for lunch uh, that's <sighs> well, my certainly what I would be doing cook, so they're going to be lucky you know 
they go to the restaurant, actually. Yeah, no doubt. There you no go. Doubt. All right. So. Chris, thank you so much for taking the time. Chris Coombs from um, uh, Boston Urban Hospitality and, and uh, check out those restaurants in Boston. Thank you so much for, for talking with us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. That's it for this episode of Forbes Under 30. I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to reach out to us with a comment or question, please do so at under30, that's the number 30, at podcast1.com. Hi, I'm Spencer Raskoff, the CEO of Zillow Group, and I have a new podcast here on Podcast One called Office Hours. Listen as I have one-on-one conversations with other CEOs. We have the kind of conversations that can only happen between peers, tackling tough questions, sharing hard-won insights, and helping to define what leadership means today. Join me twice a month on Office Hours, exclusively on Apple Podcasts, PodcastOne.com, and the new Podcast One app. Springtime tips and fun facts from Paul, Kristen, and Dexter at Total Wine and More. Did you know there were over 1 million bubbles in a glass of champagne? Did someone say brunch? Leave the egg hunting to the kids. We'll have even more fun hunting for your brilliant brunch, Riesling. Ham's sweet and salty richness pairs perfectly with sweeter wines with bold fruit. How about a juicy Pinot Noir? Whether you're hosting or just bringing the wine, Total Wine and More has you covered with 8,000 wines, 3,000 spirits, and 2,500 beers at always low prices. Cheers! At the border, I'm Ed Donahue with an AP News Minute. At the roundtable discussion today in San Antonio, Texas, President Trump heard something he said he never heard before about life along the border. Many people are dying, and the danger of living here, unless you know exactly what you're doing, is tremendous. This is Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. Where are the people in Washington to stand up for these children, these women, these senior citizens? Where are they? Bring them down. Mr. President, let the Democrats come down to Brooks County. Let them come to any of these ranches. Let them see these bodies. Let them see the skeletons. We have the photographs. Attorney General William Barr says he thinks spying did occur on Donald Trump's presidential campaign, suggesting the origins of the Russia investigation may have been mishandled. Scientists released the first image ever made of a black hole, revealing a fiery ring of gravity-twisted light swirling around the edge of the abyss. One scientist said science fiction has become science fact. I'm Ed Donahue.